welcome back to Regionally Speaking with your host, Dee Dotson. Community members in Cherville will have a chance to share their thoughts on a potential extension of the Old Plank Road Trail in Northwest Indiana when planning consultants hold a community open house next Thursday, February 8th from 5.30 to 7 p.m. at the St. John Township Community Center. The trail currently runs from Joliet to Chicago Heights, but a feasibility study is underway to extend it to Dyer, Cherville, and possibly Griffith. Lakeshore Public Media host Michael Gallenberger recently sat down with Mitch Barloga, active transportation planner with the Northwest Indiana Regional Planning Commission, or NERPC. They start the conversation by discussing the state of trails in the region. Well, it's very strong, and it's been strong for many years. Uh, you know, over the last 20 years, if not longer, we have been uh, you know, using our abandoned rail corridors very successfully and transforming them into off-road trails, which is part of the National Rails and Trails movement. Now, being located by Chicago, having a giant lake kind of forcing all the transportation corridors into this region has been beneficial in that regard. We had 1,000 miles of railroad back in the 1800s and we lost about 300 miles of that so that's quite a quite a bit for us to work with we have maybe about 150 miles utilized as trails in this region from abandoned rails and it continues to grow so there's a lot more to come and uh, uh, the popularity just continues to increase not only here but nationally so I want to touch on a few uh, specific trail projects being here in uh, Maryville, the CNO Greenway that just sort of quietly happened, that extension. Uh, could you talk about maybe what exactly that means for Maryville, the, the extension that's uh, been taking place? Well, this is a great opportunity for the community to connect into our broader network. Uh, for years, the CNO has been an isolated segment. It was built from Taft over to, uh, I believe, Broadway, and then it got extended to Mississippi, but still isolated. And now we're going to connect it from Taft West over to the Oak Ridge Prairie. The Oak Ridge Prairie is going to be a great confluence of trails. You have the Erie Lackawanna, the Oak Savannah Trail, and now you have the CNO Greenway all coming together at this park. And at NERPSI, what we're trying to accomplish is a way of getting all of these communities connected into the core network. And Maryville will be part of that now with the extension of the CNO. So great, um, you know, a great progress by the town and there are some areas around the trail that go west to the park that can be developed into possible residential and who knows commercial or mixed-use re uh, residential or uh, so overall just a real shot in the arm for the community the other uh project that's uh, kind of gaining momentum is the Old Plank Road Trail Extension there's a feasibility study uh, currently uh, going on and that would connect Dyer to the Pensy Greenway and possibly uh, even to the Old Plank Road Trail that currently exists in Illinois. What are some of the steps that are um, taking place currently as, as planning is going on there? Uh, NERPSI, uh, we engaged with uh, Cook County uh, Highway Department on a grant. Uh, most of it was from Cook County's perspective, and uh, we uh, chipped in a few uh, dollars to help out with planning in both Dyer and Cherville, and possibly Griffith, too. 
this is an abandoned rail corridor that has been taken up as the old Plank Road Trail from Matson all the way to Joliet. I think that's almost a 20, 25 mile stretch. And so we're trying to bring it now to the east uh, into a dire in Cherville uh, in Indiana. But also there are several communities in uh, the South Chicago suburbs that are part of this initiative. So it's pretty cut and dry where is going to go in Indiana. There are some challenges in Chicago Heights. Uh, the actual old railroad corridor was... Uh, taken up by a steel mill and a fabricator, so we have to get around that. But again, it's, it's utilizing some of the side streets, turning them into mixed-use corridors with uh, shared-use uh, bicycle lanes, uh, so traffic uh, can flow safely there and get people through there. And uh, we've had some great feedback. A lot of Illinois communities are very excited about it. We have Cherville on board here in northwest Indiana, and we're looking to get Dyer and Griffith also on board. And again, it's a plan for a future trail. And again, it comes down to the communities to actually develop that trail. Uh, just so you know, NERPSI has programmed funding for a segment of the old plank from the Pensy to Central Park and Dyer. Uh, so we're looking to get that completed maybe within the next three to four years. We still have to work with the railroad corridor to make sure this works, but it's all right there, an abandoned corridor uh, ready for transformation, and you even have some great separations at Calumet Avenue and US 30. So who currently owns that corridor? Is that kind of complicated? Oh, it's very complicated. <laughs> oh, I, I could sit here and, and cry you a river. But, uh, yeah, dealing with railroads is quite challenging. Uh, but Norfolk Southern is the uh, principal owner, and um, they don't operate trains on that anymore. It's, it's a long legal thing I won't get into. But they were able to lease it out to Enbridge Pipeline. So there's a big pipeline that runs under there. We have had... Um, uh, talks with Enbridge and they seem very positive about the trail, but they always come back saying, well, we don't own it. So when you could figure out ownership, we'll work with you. So that's what we're in the uh, works of doing. And again, this study that we have engaged with is looking at working with railroads to make sure we can uh, get to that next step and uh, get this facility uh, built. And there is an opportunity, I believe, coming up for people to learn more about that and offer input in Sherryville. Is that right? Yes. We have a public open house uh, from 530 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, February 8th. It'll be at the St. John Community Center. Uh, and that's right on US 30. I don't have the address, but it's <laughs> pretty much right there on the border of Sheriffville and Dyer. We couldn't have asked for a better location, and we really want to thank the St. John uh, Township Assessor for allowing us to use the facility for this event. And yes, people can come in, talk to myself, talk to uh, the people that are putting the plan together. We're working with a consultant out of Illinois, and uh, just give us their feedback about what the trail, uh, you know, how we can make it improve the lives of people living here. And, of course, the, the big project is the uh, Marquette Greenway, which is actually, I think, a, you could call it a series of many projects that, yes. that is actually tied together. Um, I guess just what's the brief update of where does that stand right now and what still is, uh, is being worked on at the moment? The Marquette Greenway could be a whole other episode yeah. of myself. I could probably go off on a two-hour rant on it uh, just on what I've been dealing with. But, it, it, again, in the larger a picture it's a 60 mile corridor from south chicago to new buffalo and yes it is made up of 44 planning segments and many of them have been completed or funded at this time we are still looking to finish the trail as in the sense of funding when i think about finish i think of funding once you get the funding locked in it's a matter of time and then you'll get it done but we're trying to identify funding in the western part of gary and also in the city of Portage. Uh, Portage is looking to build some of that along with a new roadway near the uh, South Shore Station. So we might 
actually get some lightning in a bottle there. But the thing about the Greenway, which is amazing because it is so long, I mean, there's always parts of it that are being funded and opened every year. Uh, last year, uh, we received word from Next Level Trails uh, DNR program that Burns Harbor and Porter were awarded almost $7 million combined to build their section of the trail. And we're continuing to see that type of uh, progress and uh, success along the route. So uh, it's not easy. It's not a straightforward route. Uh, we don't have an abandoned, we don't have a straightforward abandoned rail corridor to work with. Like the western part of Gary, we're sneaking through some other corridors and we're having to use bridges to go over railroad corridors. Everything is kind of jumbled up by the lake there. You have the airport and all sorts of industry, and we're trying our best to utilize some environmentally attractive properties to make this work, but they're also sensitive properties. So in many ways, we, we really can't invade them, but at the same time, we want people to enjoy these pockets of beauty that are throughout the region that are even tucked into some of the most industrialized areas of our you know, of our county. And um, so we're looking forward to people getting out there and really having an amazing experience from one end to the other. And I'm hoping all of it could be wrapped up by 2030. I know, like you said, we could probably spend hours just going through all of it. But I do want to ask a couple technical questions as I try to follow along with, with that project. Um, yeah, you bet. So I know NERPSI recently hired or rehired a project manager to uh, oversee <laughs> parts of it. Could you kind of explain a little bit, just so I understand how what exactly is going on there? Okay. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I'll try to not confuse anybody, including myself, on this one. Uh, we are working with a project manager. We hired a consulting firm named Butler, Fairman, Seifert. Uh, they, they're Indianapolis-based. They have offices all over uh, the state. We received uh, millions of dollars in federal money, NERPSI did, out of a grant. And that grant has an acronym. I'm not going there. It's called <laughs> RAISE, but let's just leave it there. And we don't do this for a living. We give money away. We don't manage projects. Well, we had to manage this one. So we needed a firm to help kind of guide that process. So they have been contracted, and we're hoping to get them going within the next few weeks here to start working on engineering segments in Gary and Portage. I mean, I already mentioned that we need the money to build those segments, but we at least have the money to engineer it. And also to finish the segments in Michigan City and in New Buffalo a Township, just across the state line. Uh, we expect to even have a segment of the trail uh, started up here in LaPorte County from the state line to Michigan City this year. But again, we need that professional oversight. We don't have it. We're not engineers. I, I'm not an engineer. Again, and so um, we, we, we need that, and we're looking forward to working with them. They have extensive knowledge of trail development, and um, they've already been doing a lot of work even outside of their contract work because they're excited about it. They know it's a lot to get their hands on, so uh, it should be a pretty smooth transition as we go through the year. And the reconstruction of the uh, Calumet Trail mm. part of the Marquette Greenway, I believe that's gotten the approval from the National Park Service. Could you maybe explain what is taking place and what has to take place with that segment? Yeah, another one. <laughs> another one I can go on for. The Calumet Trail's had a very long history. If you didn't know, it's the oldest trail in our region. It was built in the early 70s as a slag trail. Um, and then it got rebuilt in uh, 2002. But unfortunately, nothing was done to the grading. So it just washed over. And basically, it's being called our water trail at this point. I mean, it's always flooded over. People will talk about 
you know, just how unusable it is. In fact, on our own map that we have of the region of our trails, we put there, it's a rough ride, uh, to say the least. So we finally were able to work with Porter County. Um, uh, Porter County is the main funder for this project, and it comes in three parts. It's a nine-mile trail in three phases, and it's being funded with our funds at NERPSI and also funds from the state of Indiana. I called Next Level Trails. They're actually funding a major part of the, of, of the middle section of this. Local match is being provided by Porter County government, so we do really appreciate their efforts in making that happen. And it, it, it's going to work. It's gonna, it, we're doing it right now. The, the trail's being designed for people that know this. It's going to be elevated. There'll be culverts installed, and it'll be asphalt. From when in, Right now it isn't and hasn't been, but we finally got past that barrier uh, and it's going to connect people to all parts of the national park and there's even going to be a diversion of the route right now it goes right within the nipsco corridor so you have these buzzing overhead lines for nine straight miles and you're in the hot sun and it wasn't exactly a pleasant experience well we're going to come off of the corridor and kind of wind ourselves through the uh, foliaged area of the national park reaching places of the national park that in the past really haven't been populated, haven't been visited. So we're gonna kind of open those uh, places up for new visitation. Connecting the campgrounds together is very exciting as well. The National Park has a campground as well as the Indiana Dunes State Park. Very popular, but never connected, and now they'll be connected through this project. So if all goes well, and again, I am not promising anybody anything anymore. I just don't (laughs) do that. I've learned my lesson the hard way. but. Everything's on course for a construction of all three phases this year. So by the time we get to winter of this year, it all should be done. As that trail system gets built out, trails only take you so far. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the need for safer streets for bikes, I know that's something that uh, NERPC has also been uh, been looking to address. Can you talk about maybe what we can expect in, in the coming decades as part of the plans that uh, NERPC is putting together? Well, that strikes right to my heart, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. I, I tell people all the time that, yes, our trails can act as our non-motorized superhighways, but just like if you're on an expressway, you're not going to go right into your house. You need a hierarchy of routes to get you through the region and no no less important with our uh, roads and uh, streets we have a 2050 plus plan on the table right now we have uh, that's been uh, approved since last july it has a very robust active transportation chapter we hired a consultant and that individual went through 48 different corridors throughout Lake Port and Laporte counties which is our region and identified these through routes that would get people in and out of these communities without having to be completely dependent upon trails. Trails are part of the network, of course they are, but streets have to be as well. So each of these corridors, it gets real detailed, but they're broken down into different segments about, okay, from this point to this point, okay, what's the condition of the roadway? How much traffic does it uh, deal with? And then what kind of implements can we bring to the table to make this safer for bike and pets? Uh, Just as one example, we have Main Street in Munster, and right now they're in the process of redoing it and putting a side path in. Obviously, that's great. Side path is wonderful, but sometimes bike lanes work. Sometimes you just have to put a sign up. If you're on a county road, you don't need too much effort there. But again, we want to make sure we caution people that, you know, you have to have a certain skill if you are sharing the roadway with cars, of course. But these are the type of uh, initiatives that we're trying to launch region-wide to work with our local entities in the area so they can implement it at their own local level into their capital improvement plans and see this network flourish. 
And is there that same amount of support and momentum for the complete streets versus trails? I mean, it's one thing to put a trail on a railroad corridor that hasn't been used in decades. It's another thing to take, you know, a lane of that's been used for cars every day and, you know, take it out and think it could be used for bikes or for people. Is that support? happening or is that a bigger challenge well that's a challenge yeah this gets into the whole idea of what's called a road diet where you have like the typical road diet is they have four lanes of traffic okay and you bring that down to three lanes you have two lanes either way and then you have the turning lane and then on either side of it you have a bike lane or you have enough room for a path or what have you and people at first are like no you can't shrink our roadway but then if you think about it you're actually improving traffic flow. You're giving people a place to turn. You ever been on a four-lane road without a turn, and then people just decide, I'm going to turn left here, and it happens everywhere, and then everyone's backed up behind that. People are making all these very dangerous maneuvers around it and so forth. Uh, that's eliminated, and then the traffic flow improves. And in many cases, it's over, you have too much capacity to begin with. The road's too big for as much traffic as going through there. So, again, when you are able to work with these uh, and do so successfully not only are you improving traffic flow you're improving the safety of the bike and pets on these roadways because the traffic is flowing more predictably and usually slower there's more friction on the road okay you, you don't have like four lanes where you can just barrel through there and people will do that if, if you build it wide enough okay it doesn't matter what speed limit you put on it people psychologically are going to act by human nature, it's a big road. I'm going to go fast in many cases. So, again, there is a lot of psychology behind it, but there is also a lot of education. You already said so. How are people buying into it? Well, it's challenging. And, you know, we have one project in Munster uh, where the Ridge Road is uh, being planned to be reduced and to improve bike and pet access. I, I think it's a wonderful idea. I think it's exactly what they need, especially if they're trying to uh, promote a new downtown there. You should give hierarchy to the bike and pets. I mean, Everywhere else, the hierarchy goes to the cars. Can we just have a few areas where bike and pets? Crown Point Square is a great example of that. I mean, you get there, there's a lot of friction. You can't just whip around the square like you used to. You have what they call curb extensions. So, you know, the people can walk out. They can see the traffic. The traffic can see them. Yeah, it takes you a while to get around the square now. But if you're a pedestrian, you feel far more comfortable in that area. And it has produced a great amount of uh, success with new business opportunities. It's become a real hot spot in the region for people to visit. And again, I could go on. You have that in Highland. You have that in Valparaiso where they've done some great work downtown. Laporte is another community. I can go on. But again, these improvements, once done, are real quality and life enhancements. And again, my question, I think, is momentum, either for those sorts of things or, or going back to trails. I mean, the Next Level Trails program has led to a lot of investment, obviously, but there is going to be a new governor yep. next year. How optimistic are you? Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it all depends on who gets uh, elected. Uh, we hope that that governor will recognize the great success of the Next Level Trails program, will understand that every grant cycle was oversubscribed. We had far more applications than money available. The need for trails is is quite evident, not only here but nationwide. Indiana just tapped into a nerve. I mean, any state that decides to have a statewide program, and there are actual consistent funding programs throughout the country in different states that are always being oversubscribed. But if we can do one consistently, that's what we're asking for. Um, Next Level Trails was like pennies from heaven. It was $180 million. Here, here you go. Have fun. And it was wonderful. We loved it, but it's not sustainable. So... I would hope whoever the next governor is will recognize that success and will build it into a yearly program that can be managed by the DNR 
And it not only would be building new trails throughout the state, but maintaining them. We have to understand that once they're in, there are a lot of entities that do not have the capacity to maintain or operate these trails. A good friend of mine always said, maintenance and operations, that's the secret sauce of any good trail. And so we hope we can get some funding allocated for that. Next Level Trails was purely new trails. And the demand is off the charts, but we still got to take care of what we've already built. And just to tie it all all back together, what do trails mean for communities when you're you know making that pitch to whoever you know is running for governor and making recommendations for where that money goes? I mean, what do you tell them about trails? Well, I've been at this for 20 years, okay, and I can honestly say with a straight face that I consider trails as community elixirs. Now, an elixir is something that purports to benefit everything. You know, it's kind of an old time snake oil thing, but Truthfully, I've never found anything negative about trails. They benefit everybody from the youngest to the oldest. And they provide health benefits. They provide economic benefits, okay? And they just provide massive quality of life benefits. Just think about our lives, okay? We all live in a grid around roadways. But here you are breaking off of that grid, okay? You're getting out into something new. Uh, You're away from the traffic. You're into nature. There's just a great appreciation of that. I always tell people, when you're on a trail, you're usually going to nod or smile at somebody going by you. Try doing that in a car. (laughs) Usually the only kind of gestures you do in a car, they're not usually very positive. But on a trail, you're outside of that kind of that machine, and you're out in the world experiencing people, experiencing nature. And again, people just gravitate to that. They they love that connection that they can have to break free of this, uh, you know, daily grind and just better themselves. So again, wherever trails have been planted, you've seen communities improve around them and sometimes significantly. You got to like the city of Carmel, Indiana, which is like the outlier. I mean, they've gone absolutely ape with their improvements. You go down there now, it's like Disney World for you know, trail development. That's great, but you see a lot of different examples, modest improvements, but improvements nonetheless. And we're seeing that throughout this region as well. New developments that are coming around trails that are being planned in this region, uh, new, down, new centers that are being, you know, again, keeping the trail at the center of their improvement and as an attraction to their area. I, I can point to Highland with the Lackawanna Trail and other communities just want to get on board with this as well because they understand the great benefits they provide. So they speak for themselves. I mean, I love my profession in the sense that when I tell people what I do, people actually want to talk to you about that. <laughs> you know, you, some people can tell, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. Okay, great. How about the bears? All right. But no, they start talking to me about trails and the trail that they were at in Wyoming and the trail they were at in Oregon or in Massachusetts. And I'm just sitting there, yeah, they, aren't they wonderful? And again, even the empirical evidence makes light of that with home values that go up with businesses that are not only uh, that are are retained but also new businesses created people that want to live and uh, work and play in those communities as well and that was lakeshore public media host michael gallenberger speaking with mitch barloga active transportation planner with the northwestern indiana regional planning commission or nerpsy you're listening to regionally speaking on listener supported lakeshore public media A new year has arrived, kids are back in school, and National Mentoring Month is in full swing. While the benefits youth receive from being involved in a quality mentoring program have been well established, we continue to learn more about the connection between mentoring and improved mental health. 
Indiana Youth Institute's president and CEO, Tammy Silverman, joins us now to discuss how the organization is celebrating the annual campaign aimed at expanding quality mentoring opportunities and connecting more of our community's young people with caring adults. Tammy, Happy New Year, and thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Happy New Year to you, Dee. I'm delighted to be here. Tammy, your latest column shared online at IYI.org is titled The Connection Between Improved Mental Health and Youth Mentoring in concert with the month of January recognizing National Mentoring Month. Now, we have spent a great deal of time discussing youth mental health over the past year, but I'm curious about the connection. So take a moment to share a bit about what research reflects as a benefit to the relationship between mentoring and mental health. Yes, you know, we were really excited to see this because we have been supporting mentoring programs for a number of years. We serve as Mentor Indiana, the affiliate of the National Mentoring Partnership. So we know there are a lot of great benefits of mentoring, such as kids that are mentored um, feel feel like they are they have a stronger sense of belonging. They are more likely to engage in a sport or hold a leadership position in a club at school. And they're also more likely to volunteer. The research saying that it also benefits their mental well-being is, is, was new to us. And so that they report significantly fewer behavioral problems and fewer symptoms of depression and social anxiety when compared to those kids that are not mentored. So that's, that's as, as you said, we're talking an awful lot about youth mental health right now, as we should. And mentoring is definitely a bright spot in that service. Tammy, you touch on some of the reported lasting tangible effects for adults who were mentored as youth. Can you highlight a few of those for our listening audience? Absolutely. So, you know, you may be matched up with a with a mentor as a child. And what this research did was looked at over time when you're adult, what, what were those lasting benefits, including 74% say that their mentor contributed significantly to their success later in life. 69% said that that relationship helped them with issues related to their education and persistence in the education. And 58%, again, here's another component in that height of mental health, say that their mentor has supported their mental health. That is so exciting to hear. Now, Tammy, I want to talk for a moment about emotional intelligence. So you touched on this already, but I understand, again, another benefit for youth connected to a quality mentoring program, and I want to be sure that we say a quality mentoring program, is that mentoring can serve as a strategy for preventing adverse behavior. What research does your latest column unpack on this topic? Yeah, again, I think at the core of it, mentoring is that investment and that showing that there are individuals that care about the child. And so we know that those mentors um, really do help students understand that they can help them with effective communication and what we call pro-social behavior. It helps youth express and regulate their emotions. It helps them um, with their perceived value, personal relationships. There's praise and encouragement, and all of these various things really do add to that emotional well-being of, of kids that are mentored. 
Tammy, again, you are the president and CEO of Indiana Youth Institute, and your organization, IYI, supports youth services through innovative trainings, critical data, and capacity-building resources, aiming every effort at increasing the well-being of all children. Now, early on, you mentioned mentoring Indiana. So I want to ask you to that point, are there mentoring programs in the state that offer the kind of, again, quality mentoring program you advocate for in your latest column? Absolutely. And I love that question, Dee, because there are. There are quality mentoring programs in in most, if not all, corners of our state. I think when we think about mentoring programs, the quickest one, at least for me and many folks, is Big Brothers Big Sisters. And, and that makes sense because it started in 1904 and has been around for many, many years. And while they are certainly one of those that quality mentoring programs, there are lots of other programs around. Um, in your neighborhood, such as College Mentor for Kids. There are some that are uh, that are affiliated with the faith-based community. And again, it's not so much what the name is or those things, but the intentionality with which they approach mentoring. And that really is centered on safety, impact, and equity across those programs. So there, I'm delighted to say there are many, many quality mentoring programs available in our state. Finally, Tammy, you've shared so much information that we obviously cannot go through in our conversation today. But if anyone is interested in reading your latest column in its entirety, again, where can they find it? They can go to IYI.org and it should be right there on the landing homepage. Tammy Silverman is the president and CEO of Indiana Youth Institute. Tammy, as always, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking, and we look forward to chatting with you next month. Thank you, Dee, for how wonderfully you care for our kids. And you're listening to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Media. Richard Gordon Hatcher was born July 10th, 1933, in Michigan City, Indiana. He received a Bachelor's of Science degree in Business and Government from Indiana University in 1956 and a Bachelor of Law with Honors with a concentration in Criminal Law, as well as a Juris Doctorate from Valparaiso University School of Law in 1959. A successful politician, social servant, and educator, Richard Hatcher began his career practicing law in East Chicago, Indiana. In 1961, he began serving as deputy prosecutor for Lake County until he was elected to Gary City Council in 1963. He was the first and only freshman elected president of the city council in Gary's history. For many people in Gary, Richard Gordon Hatcher will always be known as mayor. His life has always been a life of service to the people of Gary having rose to a level of prominence that his ancestors could have never imagined. When he was elected as mayor of Gary in 1967, Hatcher was among the first African-American mayors of a major U.S. city. He remained in office until 1987 for an unprecedented five terms. Richard Gordon Hatcher passed away December 13, 2019. Joining us today to talk about his history and legacy is Chuck Hughes, the president and CEO of the Geary Chamber of Commerce. Chuck, as always, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Dee, thank you for having me. Chuck, in my introduction to our conversation today, 
I shared just a small glimpse into the professional background of Mayor Richard Gordon Hatcher. I always love to chat with you because I consider you to be a true historian having a front row seat to much of Gary for umpteen years. So I want you to share a little bit about the man. What was the Honorable Richard Gordon Hatcher like? Well, Dee, thank you for uh, making me uh, as an old man. And I am. (laughs) (laughs) But... uh, Seriously, though, uh, he was the trendsetter. He was the trailblazer. He was the person who, once he was elected in 1967, he set the standard. I mean, he showed all of us. I mean, subsequently, I became a city councilman. He showed us all that it was possible. And at that particular time, Gary was not the Gary that we recognize right now. Gary was a city where he literally had to challenge and impress people in order to get to where he was. You mentioned him being the first freshman president of the council. He may have been one of only one or two or the only African-American on that particular council. So his leadership ability was exemplified early on. Before the world knew him as Mayor Hatcher, Richard Gordon Hatcher was an outstanding athlete, an activist, and a lawyer in private practice before becoming a Lake County deputy prosecutor. Again, at a time when oftentimes no one else in the room looked like him. And so it seems only natural that he would enter the political arena to represent disenfranchised community members. So let's go back to 1967. That year, not one but two African-American men were elected to lead a major American city. Carl Stokes was elected mayor of Cleveland and Richard Hatcher was elected mayor of Gary, with both advancing major victories for the civil rights movement. Let's listen to him in his own words as he reflected on that election night. Mm-hmm. I can't name all of the people who worked so hard from that first first campaign and and really challenged uh, the existing uh, uh, structure uh, in Gary, and uh, which was. Uh, segregated, uh, which uh, basically uh, was oriented to helping helping uh, those who had a lot <laughs> and not helping those who didn't have much. For many of the uh, young blacks in the city, uh, my being elected, uh, uh, it was it was an, an inspiration on election night. Uh, I'll never forget uh, the night because our headquarters were up around 20th and Broadway. It was right next to our law office, where our law office was. That area, that entire street was simply jammed with people. There were just people, people, wall-to-wall uh, uh, people. Uh, out there, and people were literally uh, dancing, uh, dancing in the streets. So Richard Hatcher was sworn into office January 1968 and remained mayor of Gary for the next 20 years. Chuck, as you were listening to that archived audio from Richard Hatcher, what were you thinking about? The fact that in 1965, that's when the Civil Rights Act was passed. So we're only talking like three years after that, or two years after that, rather, right. with him being elected. The open housing uh, ordinance in Gary was not enacted until 1968. So we're talking about a person who firsthand was there right on the brink of when 
the entire Civil Rights Act for the entire nation was passed, and he became uh, one of the two, and as arguably he was the first, by a few hours or something, of the first black mayor in the United States. And for him to be able to hit the ground running with issues that affected the disparate, the urban, the black community, and not being satisfied with having been elected, not by a 90% majority of blacks, because Gary was not constituted in that way, but to have a vision and the courage to know and the commitment to stay with what was true to him was to help the underprivileged, to improve the economic lot and the social lot of those who needed improvement the most. I just think that that spoke to visionary leadership. That spoke to a person who remained committed to what they suggested they would do once they assumed the mantle of leadership. And uh, so all of the praise, all of the recognition, all of the legacy that we talk about with Richard Gordon Hatcher, I think richly deserved. The city of Geary, which was founded in 1906 by U.S. Steel, already plagued by an economic gut punch in the early 1960s as the steel plant laid off thousands of workers. During the same time, Geary began to see an almost exodus of its white citizens and most detractors attributing it to Hatcher being elected. Talk more about that for a moment. You know, uh, partly, but I'm not going to lay all of the blame on that. Clearly, America was not ready, and Gary, being still probably 50-50 African-Americans at that point, and Caucasian population, uh, there are many people in Gary who were not ready for that type of leadership. I mean, it's just, the times just did not dictate it. So there was a white flight. Unfortunately, not just residents, uh, uh, Caucasian residents leaving the community, when they left, they were the principal business owners. So when you see a desolate downtown Gary, shells of, of businesses and buildings, you see those businesses there in South Lake Mall and Merrillville. You see the piers, the Finney's, the Goldblatt's, uh, the Robert Hall's, the, you name it. All of the companies that you see uh, uh, out in Merrillville and in the malls, Merrillville and some of these other places, uh, those were all vibrant businesses in the city of Gary. So the biggest gut punch was not as much as residents leaving, although population decline is important, the biggest gut punch was the fact that when they left, the businesses left as well. Now, you alluded to U.S. Steel. Uh, and when I suggest that, it's not all the fact that uh, Hatcher was elected. One problem we had as a community is that we were so reliant upon U.S. Steel. During the term of my being a city councilman, when U.S. Steel paid their property taxes, it nearly constituted almost half of our entire city budget. That's how reliant wow. we were on wow. U.S. Steel. Now, what happened, and a lot of people are not aware of this, but I happened to have been a councilman at the time, so this is firsthand. What happened was U.S. Steel realized that they were such a, a dominant uh, portion of providing the uh, tax base for the city of Gary. So they lobbied, they lobbied the legislature and suggested that they were paying more than their fair share. They went to Indianapolis, they lobbied the legislature, and U.S. Steel was afforded the opportunity to pretty much uh, uh, assess their own property taxes. Wouldn't you love to have that privilege? Absolutely. And so what happened was, uh, in addition to the white flight and the businesses leaving, well, when U.S. Steel then, after being successful, the term is called abnormal obsolescence. 
that was the legal term for the action that took place. Well, when U.S. Steel was successful in that, being able to assess their own property taxes, then the city of Gary literally started to receive about one-third of what U.S. Steel was originally paying to the city. And remember, I mentioned that that's how totally dependent we were upon them. So let's couple all those things together. The white flight, the businesses leaving, U.S. Steel being able to assess their own inventory tax and the decline in revenue to the city of Gary, then that is what you get in terms of a city now trying to rebuild itself and the, and the city trying to expand its tax base and a chamber of commerce working extremely hard with, with entities within and outside of the city and with Mayor Prince and this administration trying to work as hard as we can to restore much of what was lost in the city of Gary. So that's where we are right now. Wow. Wow. And I thank you for unpacking and expounding on on that question. You share um, valuable information that a lot of people are not aware of. I'll be honest with you. I had not I don't think that I was fully aware of the full dependency that the city of Gary had on U.S. Steel. Let me tell you this, uh, D. Uh, Not only the full dependence, uh, everybody, all the black folks that migrated, including probably your folks and my grandparents or whatever, Everybody migrated from the South because in 1906, uh, when U.S. Steel, when the city of Gary was founded, uh, at that very same time was when U.S. Steel decided to build this massive plant, and they were looking for a place. And so they found this barren land in northwest Indiana, and uh, they started, Albert Gary started to build the U.S. Steel plant, and then blacks started to migrate from the South. And then... When when uh, we were accustomed to working under all kinds of conditions, we're talking about people who initially were slaves and sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. So we were the population, we were, we were the working population that they were looking for. And when people came up here, our ancestors started to work in the mills. They could, they could stay there for unlimited amounts of time, make all kinds of money. That's why some of our grandparents, great-grandparents, with no education, sixth-grade educations, they were making six-figure salaries in the 50s and 60s because you could literally wow. lay in the mills and make as much money as you like. So ultimately or subsequently, then they were able to send their kids to college and, and uh, some blacks were able to become teachers and doctors and lawyers uh, in our communities like Richard Gordon Hatcher and others. So, hey, listen, it's a rich history in terms of how we got to where we were, where Gary was the magic city, to the point where we got to where Gary was a city in decline. And now a city that we're talking about trying to really make things happen. So uh, come by my office one day. I can give you, I'll give you the complete lesson. But yeah, I do. Uh, I'm probably, I probably am one of the few living people now who lived through a lot of it and was a part of a lot of the legislation and a lot of the actions that took place. Some things that happened in the community. And so uh, just happy that I was helpful if I was. Chuck Hughes is the president and CEO of the Gary Chamber of Commerce. Okay, Chuck, so in preparing for our interview today, I spent a great deal of time doing my homework because, quite frankly, I wanted to be certain that I got the story right on the life and legacy of Richard Hatcher. And one major thing that I wanted to be sure that we discuss today is that Richard Hatcher was a national voice of civil rights, bringing the National Black Political Convention to Gary in 1972. And it's important to note how it played out in not only Black history, but in American history as well. And I'm going to pitch you a ball, and I hope you can hit a home run with this one. Now, picture Gary 
Not known as a town for having a lot of hotels or other venues for holding large events, yet it played host for this event to so many African Americans that traveled from around the country, including noted activists and dignitaries, the likes of Muhammad Ali, Coretta Scott King, Louis Farrakhan, and Jesse Jackson, just to name a few. And wow, and just to be in that space, just to witness history. You know, what are your thoughts? Well, they didn't care about the venue where they were. I believe it was West Side High School. They didn't care about the venue where they were. Uh, As I mentioned before, the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1965. We're only talking a couple of years, a mere couple of years later, uh, five years or so, that these people convened in Gary. And because of the success of Richard Hatcher and Carl Stokes, then that was inspiring. There was a call to action. Black people say now, hey, we can be in the leadership position around the world. It was an awakening. And so to convene in Gary, it was historical. Uh, that had not occurred anywhere else. And uh, with all those leaders assembled and with the collective energy that was derived in that room and the inspiration to change lives and to become powerful forces, in government and in our country and be a part of the American fabric. Listen, the emotion was running rapid. And so it didn't matter where they were. It was the fact that all of these prominent African-American black leaders were there together in a collective spirit in order to try to be unified, to make some change, to make some things happen. Now, I don't know subsequently in, in the subsequent years what all happened, but at that particular time, the spotlight was on Gary, Indiana, Richard Gordon Hatcher was the person who convened this massive meeting, and it sort of put Gary on the map. Now, having said that, uh, here in Northwest Indiana, Indiana being a red state for the most, well, well, majority red state, I can't say how that can't went over with the uh, majority population of the time in Gary and Northwest Indiana. But it was an awakening for black leadership and the black community and so it, it made its mark. It was etched in the uh, history of, of America at that time. Absolutely. And I should say, as you mentioned, that it made its mark. Those people who came, who traveled from all over the country, they were not of the same thought. Some some had the militant thought of, of by any means necessary. Some approached advancing the rights of African-Americans as being quite peaceful. So even in that, that just speaks to the leadership of Richard Hatcher, being able to assemble many people who did not necessarily agree on the approach on how to advance the African-American voice. And so I did want to include that as well. That within itself, I'm certain it was a monumental task, but to see that play out, so many different things. Well, that made him him an instant uh, leader in the uh, national black community. That. Once you do that, once you're the person who's the facilitator, once you're the person who convenes the action, that automatically ascends you to a high level of leadership. Continuing on, speaking about Richard Hatcher's leadership. Also during his tenure as mayor, Richard Hatcher was briefly an advisor on urban regeneration to Lyndon B. Johnson's administration, and he used that service, that connection, to bring federal resources back to Gary to help with affordable housing, economic development, as well as to fight crime. Being mayor always had its challenges, but he always rose to the occasion. And eight years after he was first elected mayor of Gary, Richard Gordon Hatcher married the love of his life. Together, Richard and Ruth Ellen Marie Rose raised three beautiful daughters. 
His eldest daughter, Reagan, followed in his footsteps and is currently a member of the Indiana House of Representatives. Not only did his audacity to believe he could inspire generations, including Chicago Mayor Harold Washington, all the way to President Barack Obama to run for and win their respective seats, his legacy lives on. So, Chuck, as we near the end of our time together today, do you have any final thoughts? Well, when you mention that uh, his legacy lives on, I think it's no clear indication that anybody who visits Gary City Hall will see this very prominent statue of Richard Gordon Hatcher. He is the only person with a statue in the inner city, the city of Gary, aside from the founder of the city, Albert Gary. So I think that speaks volumes for itself. Uh, when you when you stand alone uh, on, on the doorsteps of Gary City Hall and you're the person with a statue. I think that's a lasting monument, and I think that speaks volumes to what he's done, and it's a great history lesson for visitors near and far and young people who go into our, our city hall. So, yeah, I think that uh, it's a legacy that we can all build on, be proud of, and not only that, not just consider it as a memory, but I think it should be one that inspires us in every walk of life, be you an elected official, a school teacher, a chamber exec, or a media person. It should inspire all of us to greatness, and it should inspire all of us to want to improve the lot of the human element in our community. And so it's, it's been inspirational to me, and it's certainly a driving force in what I try to do as an individual and as the president and CEO of the Gary Chamber of Commerce. Chuck, I would be remiss if I did not give honor where honor is due. As I said in the beginning, you are living, breathing, walking, and talking black history, but in your own right. You have a long career in service to the community, having served with the Gary Fire Department, the Gary City Council, and now as the president and CEO of the Gary Chamber of Commerce, and not to mention just your countless acts of service to man. So, Chuck, thank you so much for spending time with me today talking about the life and legacy of the Honorable Richard Gordon Hatcher. I really appreciate you carving out some well, time gee, to with me. Thank you for being so kind, and thank you for saying those kind things about me. And I want you to know that uh, even your comments are inspiring to me to try to continue to make a difference. So I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. Chuck, thank you so much once again for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Anytime. Chuck Hughes is the president and CEO of the Gary Chamber of Commerce. To get more information about the chamber, you can visit www.garychamber.com. And that's it for Regionally Speaking for this week. Thanks to our guest, and we'll be back with you next week with an all-new show.